In World War II, Allied and Axis submarine fleets were key tactical assets, sinking thousands of ships on either side. German U-boats sunk some 2,700 merchant ships in their attempt to strangle Britain when she fought alone in the Battle of the Atlantic, and later to slow the flow of Allied supplies into Europe. The U.S. submarine fleet in the Pacific embarked on long-range patrols deep into Japanese-controlled waters, sinking more than 1,300 Japanese merchant vessels and more than 200 warships throughout the course of the Pacific War, absolutely devastating the Japanese war economy and Japan's ability to supply far-flung armies and fleets. But in the Cold War, the U.S. and Soviet submarine fleets served a far more important role, because in them rested the fate of humanity. The existence of rival submarine fleets, constantly hiding beneath the vast and concealing oceans of the world, best guaranteed to each superpower that there could be no winning a nuclear war. No matter how sure leaders in Washington or Moscow were that their air forces could shoot down every enemy nuclear-armed bomber before it reached the heartland, or destroy every hidden missile silo in Kansas or Kazakhstan before nuclear intercontinental ballistic missiles spewed forth death onto cities from seemingly empty fields, U.S. presidents and Soviet premiers could never be sure that their navies would be able to find and sink every one of the opposite superpower's ballistic missile submarines before they revealed themselves with a nuclear counterstrike, and thus, mutually assured destruction was, well, assured. A hidden nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarine is the definition and the upholder of mutually assured destruction, because you can never really win a mass nuclear exchange. The best you can do is lose together. This is the story of the U.S. submarine force during the Cold War, and all of the espionage, combat operations, nuclear balance of power politics, and technological revolution that went along with it. I think this is one of the more interesting episodes I've made so far, and I hope you'll agree. I'm your host, Chase Dalton, and let's get started. In the very first years of the Cold War, our submarine fleet largely consisted of World War II-era boats powered by diesel engines and snorkel technology derived from German designs seized at the end of World War II, which allowed these boats to move and recharge their electric batteries underwater, which in turn allowed for short-range, silent operations while remaining hidden. New passive sonar technology allowed submarines to listen to sounds emitted by other ships and other submarines underwater and develop a pseudo-picture of the underwater landscape without sending out an active sonar ping and revealing the submarine's location in turn. These two key pre-nuclear technologies combined to turn the submarine into the Navy's premier espionage platform, in addition to its deadliest silent killer and nuclear backstop. During the Korean War, the submarine fleet served as a huge deterrent to the newly victorious Chinese communists, who wanted to invade Taiwan and finish off the nationalist forces, which had fled to the island. But the Chinese Navy had no anti-submarine capability, and the U.S. planners let it be known that any Chinese troop ships would be sitting ducks for U.S. submarines patrolling the Taiwan Strait, and that the U.S. was not prepared to allow the Red Army to cross the 110-mile-wide strait. This is one more demonstration of the importance of sea power. Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist forces had been utterly defeated on land by the communists in the Chinese Civil War, 
but were saved from total annihilation by a few ships and submarines belonging to a nation 6,000 miles away. And to this day, it's that same threat of U.S. fleet action that keeps Taiwan independent. Although now that the Chinese fleet is growing extremely quickly, this is looking like an issue which may be contested in the next decade or two. Beyond the deterrent effect in the Taiwan Strait, submarines patrolled and spied on the North Korean coastline, surveilled potential amphibious landing spots including at Incheon, and landed commandos and spies deep into enemy territory. The story of the USS Perch, a World War II Balao-class submarine converted into a transport submarine through the addition of a huge cylindrical bulb on her afterdeck, showcases some of the unique submarine combat capabilities. The heavily modified Perch received her tests in September of 1950, just three months into the Korean War, after being picked to launch a raid into the northeast coast of Korea, west of Tanchon. The Perch was loaded up with 60 highly trained British Royal Marine Commandos and navigated through a minefield before putting the Royal Marine Commandos ashore under cover of darkness. Loaded down with explosives, the Commandos moved inland to their objective, a key railroad tunnel, and scurried up the sides of the railroad embankment. Pressure charges were laid under the tracks and set to go off when the next train passed through the tunnel. After laying the explosives out and on the way back to the rendezvous point, the British commandos were discovered by a North Korean patrol and forced to make a fighting retreat the rest of the way back to the perch. The action was heard by the perch offshore, which went to battle stations and laid out a makeshift operating room on wardroom tables. Perch maneuvered back into the mine bay under a clear, moonlit sky while avoiding enemy patrol boats that had been alerted by the gunfire ashore. Finally, the British commandos reached the submarine and climbed wearily aboard, carrying one of their comrades who had been fatally wounded and was later buried at sea, wrapped in the Union Jack flag. The USS Pinkerell conducted a similar commando raid later in the war, and both the Perch and other specially modified submarines would land Navy SEALs and other commandos ashore in Vietnam and other Cold War hotspots, But for the most part, the submarine's moment came later in the Cold War, after the development of nuclear propulsion and far from active combat zones. Inextricably linked with the Navy's Cold War nuclear program was the truly one-of-a-kind, brilliant, idiosyncratic, father of the nuclear Navy, and longest-serving naval officer in history, Hyman G. Rickover. He was also a huge asshole. Rickover despised many forms of military structure and would often work in civilian suits instead of military uniforms, more or less completely ignored the entire concept of a chain of command, and to this day, his legacy in the form of methods of education for nuclear sailors, high technical training and accountability standards, and a collection of quasi-canonical sayings and eccentricities passed down are still adhered to more than 40 years after his retirement. I do want to stress, though, that for all of Rickover's very odd eccentricities. The Navy nuclear power culture he instituted has been very successful at maintaining an unparalleled safety record and extremely high standards. In another time, Rickover might have been a transformative and disruptive tech titan, one of those guys who does his own thing, but good God, does he get stuff done. And those sorts of people often come with some quirks that are part of the package deal. One of these traditions is that every officer going into the nuclear program must personally interview with the head of naval reactors. The head of naval reactors is a four-star admiral overseeing the design and technical operation 
of the Navy's surface and subsurface nuclear fleets. And aspiring nuclear officers, such as myself many years ago, are lowly midshipmen. You only get to talk to the Admiral after completing a series of technical interviews with some extremely bright people at the Naval Reactor's headquarters in the Navy Yard Building in Washington, D.C. Assuming you pass these interviews, which are designed to see how you think, just about everybody comes out of them feeling like a complete dumbass, you sit down with the current head of Naval Reactors after doing a very stiff and formal self-introduction in the Admiral's absolutely huge office. The Admiral looks at you with a complete deadpan expression and then at the notes from your technical interviews, no doubt detailing where you fell on the dumbass scale from 500 to 5,000. He also has your college transcripts and grades and whatever else the Navy bureaucracy has dragged up about you. And then with a total lack of expression, looks back up at you and asks the most random question you've ever heard. It can be about literally anything. One friend I know, he played on the intramural ultimate Frisbee team, which must have been in the notes that the Admiral had because he was asked to explain in detail the physics of Frisbee flight. Now, we're all pretty smart people to be considered for the nuclear interview, but and, and I'm sure that my friend gave a somewhat satisfactory answer incorporating angular momentum and lift and drag off the top of my head, but who can give an off-the-cuff explanation of Frisbee physics while sitting ramrod straight and brain-fried from two hours of technical interviews? The answer is nobody, or at least not my friend, and he inevitably beat an ignominious formal retreat promising to find out and report back. You know, the typical midshipman at that point will then go find a spare computer, do some quick research, and then wait for a free second outside the Admiral's office to give your hastily researched answer before he goes on to give you the sign of approval, or not in the case of a few. But hey, at least you're doing it while not in the chair which was used in Rickover's day, which is now thankfully outside of the office as a display where the bottom four inches or so of the front legs were cut off, tilted down at a fairly steep angle, which meant that any aspiring nuclear officers had to constantly fight to keep from slipping off the tilted chair. And if you didn't fall off the chair and somehow disappointed the admiral, then there was a chance that you were ordered to stand silently inside of the office's large storage closet to observe and reflect on your numerous failings for a few hours before trying again. So yeah, that, that, that was Rickover. And I, of course, have my own little non-Rickover, thankfully, naval reactor story, as does every submarine and surface nuclear officer. But here's my ask, and it's that I want to hear yours. Uh, give me a call at 312-361-0390 and leave me a voicemail. Or you can shoot me an email at usnavalhistorypodcast at gmail.com. If you or someone you know has a good nuclear Navy story or about Rickover, your interviews, or anything like that. I have randomly met a few people with some great Rickover stories at airport security lines or at restaurants over the years, and their stories are always great. Even if you don't think yours is, I can guarantee you that a lot of people in my audience will find it interesting. And I would like to incorporate a couple of these stories into a short special episode at some point in the distant future. So if you would like to chat, please again reach out at 312-361-0390 and leave me a voicemail or you can shoot me an email at usnavalhistorypodcast at gmail.com. If I get a few people who want to share their story, I'll of course share mine in the same episode. So please don't hesitate and I'd love to hear from you. All right, so back to the history. So in World War II, Rickover served as the head of the electrical section of the Bureau of Ships, 
which was responsible for, quote, supervising the design, construction, conversion, procurement, maintenance, and repair of ships and other craft in the Navy, managing shipyards, repair facilities, laboratories, shore stations, and developing specifications for fuels, lubricants, and conducting salvage operations, end quote. So a lot of stuff there. And Rickover was pretty quickly recognized as an engineering force in and of himself. And after the war was transferred to Oak Ridge as part of a project to develop a nuclear electric generating plant. Rickover saw the potential of nuclear power there and became convinced that nuclear-powered ships, and in particular, nuclear-powered submarines, were the future of the Navy. Among Rickover's many gifts, though, were not diplomatic tact, and he quickly pissed off his superiors who did not agree with him about the potential for a nuclear Navy. Rickover was transferred to a desk job in Washington, D.C., which had the unintended side effect of allowing him to barge into the Chief of Naval Operations, then Admiral Nimitz's office, and make the case directly. By 1951, though, Congress, too, saw the wisdom of a nuclear-powered Navy in facing down the Soviets and authorized the construction of the world's first nuclear-powered submarine. By sheer force of will, political and bureaucratic expertise, and engineering genius, Rickover corralled the various civilian and military agencies working on nuclear power and nuclear weapons into an almost personal fiefdom as he simultaneously held the titles as the head of the Navy's nuclear power branch of the Bureau of Ships and as the head of the Division of Reactor Development at the Civilian Base Atomic Energy Commission. From there, Rickover oversaw, and to be fair, absolutely micromanaged, almost every aspect of civilian and military nuclear power and development for the next three decades. Rickover primarily championed nuclear propulsion for large surface ships and submarines, but also helped the Navy deploy tactical nuclear weapons and aircraft aboard all deployed attack carriers by 1954. On September 30th, 1954, after remarkably short three years of development, the world's first nuclear-powered submarine, USS Nautilus, was commissioned. For submarines, the superiority of nuclear propulsion over diesel for endurance, speed, and stealth was huge. In 1958, the Nautilus traversed the Arctic Ocean from the Pacific to the Atlantic, completely submerged. And just two years later, the USS Triton became the first submarine to circumnavigate the globe while submerged. The development of nuclear submarines coincided with the development of the Polaris Missile System, which would eventually become the linchpin of American nuclear deterrence during the 1960s. The Polaris was an intermediate-range ballistic missile launched vertically from a submerged submarine and carried to the surface in a bubble of compressed air. After reaching the surface, the missile's booster rockets ignited, and the missile would begin its path up into space and then down again towards its target. This was the second strike assurance I was talking about at the beginning of the episode. Submarines armed with multiple Polaris and later upgraded Poseidon missiles would position themselves in the middle of the ocean with the goal of remaining undetected by the Soviets, a deadly sword of Damocles hanging over the heads of the Soviet high command. The Polaris missile's initial 1,200-mile range was steadily upgraded and eventually replaced by the newer Poseidon missile. By the end of the Cold War, the further upgraded Trident missile, which would feature a 3,000-plus-mile range with MIRV warheads. MIRV stands for Multiple Independently Targetable Reentry Vehicle, meaning that every missile payload contained multiple warheads, in the case of the Poseidon, at least 10, which will separate and target individual cities, military sites, and other strategic targets as the missile arcs down back to Earth from space. 
Each of our patrolling SSBNs, submarine, ballistic, nuclear, will carry more than a dozen missiles, meaning that a single miss submarine could deliver well over 100 nuclear strikes, deploying more destructive power than all of the bombs all sides combined used during World War II. And thus, each side's ballistic missile submarines were hunted and tailed in an endless game of cat and mouse by the other side's attack submarines, whose goal was to be able to sink the enemy's SSBNs in the case that the fateful call to war ever did come. Keeping our SSBNs undetected while tracking the USSR's SSBNs became the single biggest priority of the U.S. Navy throughout the Cold War and worth almost any cost and almost any risk. And it was for this that tens of thousands of sailors on either side traded a normal life of sunlight, family, and any notion of personal privacy aboard cramped tubes hundreds of feet below the waves, where if you were lucky enough to have your own rack to sleep in, you could easily reach out and touch four other men for months at a time. In 1967, the Navy operated a fleet of 41 ballistic missile submarines safeguarding the American homeland against a Soviet surprise nuclear first strike and even more attack submarines to search for, and if the call came, to destroy the Soviet boomers. The advantages of nuclear submarines were significant, and with Rickover at the helm, they were the only ones in the U.S. built. The last conventionally powered combat submarine the U.S. Navy ever commissioned was the USS Blueback, launched in 1959 and decommissioned in 1990, only outlasted by the USS Dolphin, a deep-diving research and development submarine commissioned in 1968 and only decommissioned in 2007. Interestingly, the Soviet submarine fleet was kept mixed throughout the Cold War. The Soviet Union submarine program initially lagged behind the U.S. program, and they did not commission their first nuclear sub until 1958. But after a slow beginning, the Soviet building boom of the late 60s and 70s, when the U.S. Navy was resource-constrained by the war in Vietnam, the Soviet Union reached nuclear submarine parity. Throughout the rest of the Cold War, the U.S. and Soviet submarine fleets would maintain roughly the same number of nuclear submarines in our respective fleets. But the Soviets augmented their nuclear fleets with more than 100 conventional diesel-powered submarines, which served the primarily defensive purpose of protecting the huge Soviet coastline against American surface and submarine fleets. This relatively cheap conventional submarine force freed up the more capable Soviet nuclear attack submarine force for offensive operations. Like the U.S., the Soviets manned their submarines with the best and brightest their Navy had to offer and consistently produced very capable classes of submarines in large quantities that for good reason scared the living daylights out of American naval planners. Throughout the Cold War and continuing up until today, the U.S. and the Soviet Union and the Russian state which replaced it raced to produce quieter, faster, deeper diving submarines with increasingly sensitive acoustic listening sonars and weapons, which offered a crucial tactical and strategic advantage. Today, China is emerging as another peer competitor with increasingly sophisticated homegrown submarine technology of their own in this emerging second Cold War. But the story of the first Cold War submarine force would not be complete without mentioning the truly astounding extent of the espionage that the force took part in. Invisible to satellites and able to run underwater indefinitely after the introduction of nuclear power, the submarine force could and did conduct some truly amazing acts of espionage against the Soviet coastline. This is best told by a book I cannot recommend highly enough, Blind Man's Bluff by Sherry Sontag and Christopher Drew. Although I, like I'm sure many in the submarine force, wish it were published a few decades later because it contains some 
most definitely unapproved releases of classified information. It is one of my favorite naval history books and tells the story of Cold War submarine espionage. Although as far as I know, most of the operations are still recent enough and sensitive enough that there has not been any official Navy confirmation or denial about the core facts and missions. And some of the accounts may be wrong or incomplete. But nonetheless, I recommend it and only wish that there was a Soviet equivalent I could read because the stories are truly fascinating. Our submarine secretly monitored Soviet missile tests, retrieved top-secret debris from the seafloor for technical analysis, and hunted Soviet ballistic missile submarines from the time they left their bases to their patrols off the U.S. East Coast and under the treacherous operating environment of the Arctic ice. But I want to briefly recount one story from Blind Man's Bluff, which I think exemplifies the espionage that the submarine force engaged in during the Cold War. The primary Soviet submarine base in the Pacific was located in a small, isolated town called Petrovolsk, at the tail end of the long Kamchatka Peninsula, jutting into the northern Pacific between Japan and Alaska. Born from a hunch that the Soviets were not going to run thousands of miles of exposed cables over rugged land from their submarine base to the Russian mainland, when there was a much shorter route across the Sea of Okutsk, which separated the Kamchatka Peninsula from the Russian mainland, combined with a hunch that because a physical cable is impossible to intercept, the same secrets which were so carefully guarded when being transmitted through the air might just be passed without encryption via cable, spawned an idea about a dangerous and remote possibility. What if we could intercept and tap that theoretical cable? It would be the intelligence coup of a decade. The idea was dismissed by many as a pipe dream, and not just because the Sea of Irkutsk was more than 600,000 square miles large and tightly patrolled and monitored by the Soviet Union. How would you even begin to find a single cable there? The whole operation was the brainchild of James Bradley, the director of undersea warfare at the Office of Naval Intelligence, who remembered the signs from his childhood on the Mississippi River, warning boats at certain points not to anchor so that their anchors would not risk snapping a delicate cable crossing the riverbed at that point. What if the Soviets had a similar sign? And what if a submarine scouting the shoreline with a periscope could find it? And this is just what we did. Sneaking into the Sea of Orkutsk was an ordeal in and of itself. The sea is covered in ice for nine months a year, and only accessible by threading through the Soviet-controlled Kuril Island chain. On top of that, there were technical challenges. The sea of Irkutsk is shallow, but even when scuba diving at the relatively shallow depth of 300 feet, is extremely dangerous and took extensive research into the right mix of gases, compression preparation, and post-dive decompression techniques to safely carry out this sort of mission. In the end, this technology was developed, and the USS Halibut was specially modified to accommodate these special missions. By October of 1971, the boat was ready and got underway from its base in San Francisco, although its crew was kept in the dark and not told of its true mission or destination until the boat was underway and any chance of the news slipping out to the Russians was passed. Even then, the cover story the captain told the crew was that they were going to the Sea of Irkutsk to recover missile fragments from the seafloor, which accounted for the divers and strange equipment aboard. The halibut was an old boat by 1971, with a 1950s vintage reactor and loaded down with extra drag by the special equipment, it could only crawl along at 10 knots. But nonetheless, the halibut made its way from San Francisco north, 
past the Alaskan Aleutian Islands, and down past the Bering Strait, past the Soviet patrol boats and watch stations, past the Kuril Islands, and into the Sea of Orkutsk. For more than a week, the crew of the Halibut raised the periscope and looked out at the Soviet shore, looking for a sign in Russian that said something along the lines of, do not anchor, cable crossing. And finally, their bleary eyes, they saw it. The halibut detached a robotic underwater drone from her hull, which began to scour the seafloor, sending back grainy video footage to the crew aboard the submarine. Finally, the primitive underwater drone found what it had been looking for, and the divers began preparing to enter the freezing sea after breathing a combination of compressed helium and oxygen, far deeper than any normal scuba diver would be able to survive. As the halibut remained anchored to the seafloor, swaying to the currents of a November storm above, the divers ventured forth and attached a recording device to the bundle of cables. The mission had gone off without a hitch. Since they were in the area, the halibut and her divers did in fact go ahead and collect missile fragments from the Soviet tests of new aircraft carrier-killing cruise missiles that the Navy had been desperate to learn more about, and which had been part of the top-secret cover story, for returning to the wiretap to pick up the tape recordings of whatever was transmitting through the Soviet underwater wire. The mission was a massive success. When the halibut returned to port, the tapes were whisked off to the NSA, who found that many of the transmissions contained secret information in plain text, completely unencrypted, and ready to use against the Soviets. Over the next 20 years, dozens of submarine missions would venture back and forth to the Oceans cable and other Soviet cables we managed to tap, to retrieve and install new tapes. It was a job that only submarines could do, and was so top secret that each submarine retrieving and replacing the tapes for the next set of recordings was armed with self-destructing high explosives in case they were detected and could not escape from a Soviet patrol. The sailors aboard these submarines were the equivalent of unofficial spies in Moscow or East Berlin. They did not officially exist, and if caught, the United States would deny all knowledge of such a sensitive mission. The submarine force in the Cold War played a unique and dangerous role. We lost two submarines at sea, the Thresher and the Scorpion, and the Soviets lost even more. The conditions were so tense, and the cat-and-mouse game was so important, that submarine captains took enormous risks to monitor their Soviet counterparts at sea, which resulted in dozens of underwater collisions over the decades of the Cold War and enough close calls to fill far more than one book. This is the last Cold War episode, and thank you for sticking around for Season 2 of the U.S. Naval History Podcast with me. I still want to hear your thoughts on anything related to the podcast, and in particular, if you or someone you know has a good Rickover or submarine story. Actually, if you have any Cold War sea story, period, please feel free to send it my way at usnavalhistorypodcast at gmail.com or by leaving me a voicemail at 312-361-0390. I'd love to hear from you. Please also subscribe so you get the next episode in your sleep, share the podcast with anyone you think would enjoy it, and give me a rating or review if you think I'm doing a decent job and want to hear more episodes in the future. Until then, fair winds, following seas. Prepared if we must intervene. Nerves 
of steely ice We make the sacrifice Of the deterrent force at sea Sure ain't no paradise But it's a simple price To give our home some form of guarantee Peace is the goal of the boomer patrol Poseidon the protector of the sea So we pay the toll to maintain control And do our share to keep our country free